Welcome to the Seaward the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about leather. I'm Jenny Mathiasen, an object conservative based in Carmarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an object conservative based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to the show. Hi. Okay, I did promise myself that I would stop singing the intro, but somehow I always lapse nah. into doing a little sing song. I apologize. One day I'll stop. Um, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but today we're going to talk about leather. And for that, we've got a special guest host with us. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, my name is Talita Wachtelborn. I am a book conservator currently working at the Parliamentary Archives in London. I studied at Camberwell College of Arts. I've worked at the Watson Library and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Victoria and Albert Museum, Lambeth Palace Library, Senate House Library, and the Restaurierungszentrum Dusseldorf, and did some placements in a few other places as well. There's some really good names on that list, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So today we're going to talk about leather, and uh, I'm trying very hard not to make any bad jokes about <laughs> anything i'm sure you can think of some um we've already done a smut episode check out the smut episode <laughs> i know so we're going to try to keep that there <laughs> chloe what sort of things have you worked on that are like leather based well but uh, i mean before i launch in we said that we'd inform everyone that i had my vaccine this morning and oh, so yes. if i sound either drunk or hungover, then i'm not I've just been vaccinated and and you know socially responsible, but essentially I'm I've I can't I don't know have I done any leather conservation? Uh, didn't you freeze dry archaeological leather at university? I feel like that was the thing that you I did. did. Yes, I did. <laughs> Thank you. I, I yes, say I did. that because I think we've talked about that in the wet stuff episode, which was in which we did bring up that leather can sometimes be soggy. Other than that, it's been like small bits of leather as part of composite objects. Mm, so yeah. another thing that jumps to mind is just consolidating a bit of leather binding on a large cartoon book. Mm. And that is all I can think of. So what have you worked on? Right. So it's it's going to be pretty like, uh, for me, what I consider quite standard stuff. So it's, you know, I guess... First of all, leather kind of surrounds us in general, right? Like it's in a lot of things. So the things that I've worked on have tended to be things like suitcases and bags and, you know, straps mm -hmm. on things. And particularly when I've worked on military collections, there's been a lot of leather straps and a lot of, you know, bags and straps and things and sheaths for uh, swords and all sorts of stuff like that, right? So it's it's a good working material. So it's it's been used for a lot of that sort of thing. And then, of course, we've got shoes, which I've, I've worked on a fair few, uh, and uh, things like sports gear, <laughs> which sounds a little bit niche, but, you know, footballs, they, they were made of leather for a long time. Oh, yeah. You know, so I've, I've worked on a few of those, for example. So when I thought about it and I scrolled through my photos, then I did realise that I've actually worked on a fair bit of leather. It's just that it's kind of, um, it's such everyday items that it's not that they're not special because mm. they are. When they're in front of me, they're very special. But it's more that there are so many and they're so normal in many ways that it's it's not something that like stands out to me massively as a material. It, until plastics rolled around, it was like the durable material that was, was used for 
all sorts of things. And now we've gone and replaced it with plastic, basically, you know, largely at least. You can still find it around your house, obviously. Like, you know, uh, I was trying to think of leather things in my house and it was like shoes, wallets, bags. Uh, my other half has so many leather jackets. Uh, I've got a footstool. We used to have a sofa that was leather, you know, all these sorts of things, right? And, you know, it's a good hard-wearing material. Uh, I, I, I nearly started uh, talking about, I love how leather smells. And then I thought, I'm going to make it weird again. <laughs> I'm going to make it weird again. Um, also, I've now married into a horsey family. And that means that there's leather everywhere because saddles and uh, <laughs> all the bits that you put on tack, I think they're called. Uh, you know, all the stuff that goes with horses. <laughs> That I don't know anything about because I'm not a horsey person. Uh, Apologise to any horse lovers out there. I just don't get it. But yeah, so now there's even more leather stuff around. Um, but yeah, so I have worked on a fair bit of like everyday items that are leather based. But yeah, so a fair bit, but nothing, nothing huge, nothing entirely made of leather as such. Tends to be composite objects, just like you said, Chloe. How about Talita? Well, most of all, all of the objects in leather that I've worked on have been books because, well, I mean, I've only, I've only really worked with books and paper and parchment and a lot of the collections that I've worked with have had quite extensive leather collections, leather bound mm -hmm. collections, because mm -hmm. they've been historic libraries that have older, older books. And then that was of course the go-to binding material, because if it was bound in paper, then that was generally a temporary binding. And the intention was that was just to protect it until you took it to your binders and had it bound in leather. Or, you know, later on, there were some cloth bindings. But the majority of the collections I've worked on are from a period when leather was the predominant mm -hmm. material, because as you said, it was durable and it was available. So it's, it's almost a, a byproduct of people's dietary choices you know you have these animals that you're raising for food purposes and then the leather was made and they found all sorts of uses for it and it's easy to work it's you know and you can make a lot of things out of it so yeah it was it was the go-to um you could decorate it easily you know um with blind tooling and gold tooling so you could make it fancier if you want it or it could just be a basic utilitarian binding it kind of could run the gamut is there a standout binding that you've worked on that was either particularly weird or pretty or gross i don't know if i've worked on anything gross there's been a lot that have been brown calf blind tooled maybe quite basic utilitarian ones there's been a few that have been a lot prettier, you know, heavily, heavily gold tooled and blind tooled and embellished and, you know, with fancier leathers. And then there's been some that have been weird where I'm not sure how they tanned it or if it was a different creature that it came from, Ooh. but the Ooh. leather was like really fibrous and oh. it didn't look like regular leather, but it definitely wasn't paper. When people think of old books, they do think of beautiful leather bound books that are just like, you know, mm -hmm. the classic library look. The Manor House Library with everything in red Morocco with, yeah. you know, spines tooled in gold lettering. Yeah, that kind of thing. Exactly. That sort of thing. The classic look. As you were talking about how something didn't look like regular leather, it reminded me that I went to a, a webinar a while back that was called, I think it was called Caring for Leather by Laura Dana Manina, I think. It was basically um, so just kind of giving a bit of background about leather and then about how we look after it. First of all, it, it taught me some amazing things about how basically, I mean, 
as you were saying, um, because human, it's a byproduct of what humans have been eating, then, you know, people have probably been wearing leather for like 30,000 years, you know, like... <laughs> you know, that's a while it's way longer than that by the way my uh, prehistoric archaeologist prehistory archaeologist is coming out yeah it's way longer than that like 100,000 at least sorry carry on <laughs> I mean it could be this is a massive tangent it could be 500,000 years were they tanning it though yeah that's the thing like we, it would have been furs and stuff before that but, mm. but we probably don't mm. have enough evidence to say that it was leather as such treated this is another conversation <laughs> I'm sorry no I, mean, I this, got distracted. I feel like this is this is definitely part of the episode, right? Like the history of leather is interesting. Um, well, it would have started with um, brain tanning, wouldn't it? If you're using, because oh. they would have tried to use the whole animal and things like that. Yeah, that's what I would have thought. Yeah. Oh, it's just we don't have the archaeological evidence. I thought red ochre was something that was used as well to rub onto skins. What this reminds me of is when we were talking about leather at university, I think it may have been Jane. <laughs> Um, Probs. who said um, uh, leather is just sort of a dead animal that you've rubbed something into <laughs> anything you've got lying around <laughs> and that is accurate I mean humans have experimented love you Jane experimented <laughs> wildly with rubbing things into dead animals and seeing what happens so <laughs> what we've got now is a refined method of things rubbed into dead animals that's what that is <laughs> that's what tanning is it's fascinating and there's already like just so many different ways of tanning leather and and doing it well i mean that that's just thinking about you know cowhide that's you know what i guess we call the normal leather anything that wanders around can become leather um, <laughs> i've seen them um, you know fish skin leather of course and oh. leather made out of chicken feet wow so what do we know about the way that leather is made then? Because obviously we know that the lifespan of an object or the lifespan of the materials has a huge effect on the sort of condition that we're confronted with as conservators um, in the present day. But as we've just touched on, leather has had all sorts of stuff done to it. <laughs> Quite grim things as well sometimes. <laughs> really grim, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know I don't know all the ins and outs of how it would have been done medieval renaissance sort of early modern history how it would have been done mm -hmm. in various mm -hmm. countries whichever ways they were tanning things then whatever various methods they were using are definitely better than sort of um, industrial Victorian methods when they found the joy of chemistry and, um, you know, coal derivatives and things like that. Um, that led to a lot of issues because, as you said, they were they were experimenting, as they've done throughout mm. history with various chemicals. And a lot of them aren't stable and you get a lot of red rot then because mm. of the chemicals that they were using to tan it and because of storage conditions in libraries not being as good as they possibly could be but older leather just fares much much better so you'll have books a lot of the time where there's the original binding or an earlier binding on the covers and then a reback that's maybe less than 100 years old and that's failing miserably it is of course you know, covering the joints and it's the area that's flexing the joints and the spine. So that's all flexing mm -hmm. and moving and stretching and contracting and so on. So it's getting more, more movement, more flexibility than the leather on the boards. But there are some bindings that still have intact spines and the leather is, is far better than things that have been rebacked more recently. And now, you know, there's more studies. Uh, Hewitt's did a study with a few other institutions about what sort of qualities really help create 
leather that is properly conservation grade um, and they've got information on their on their website um, but you can get leather from them that you can find out what the provenance is and you know sometimes they tan it completely themselves sometimes they buy things that are pre-tanned in the country of origin but you can find out what the process was and determine which one which leather is most appropriate for your specific needs that is so cool. So you just mentioned red rot, and I know that we're we're doing how leather is made at the moment, <laughs> but I want to jump immediately onto what can happen to leather or sidestep into what can happen to leather. So red rot, essentially, it's gone really acidic, right? So what other things happens? Is that the only, is that one of the, the, the main ways that leather responds then, um, that it becomes acidic over time and then starts to break down well, well how many things is it possible to not say that to actually that red rot's mainly how it's how it was tanned originally it's just really acidic really chemical and it, yeah. it breaks it down so it's it's just not as strong and the the fibers break down mm. um and you get that powdery neat structure to it it can you know you can have damage from insects you can have damage from excessive moisture if it's too dry it'll get brittle and then abrasion in this country there is quite a lot of uh bindings in sheep because again people would make leather out of they would eat sheep don't make very good leather so you Aww. can often tell they're yeah. too busy on the wool give them a break <laughs> Well, I like them for their wool. They should just <laughs> you should just use them for wool. But the um because of their the structure of their skin where there's more fat between the layers, it delaminates. So it's great for things like parchment because you can sort of split it and make it into thinner pieces. Mm. It was often used for making things like labels because you could pair it really thin. You could split it down really easily. But it because of how fatty it is, it does it does break down more quickly. You know, calfskin would be better, but there wasn't as much calfskin available. And I think there just weren't as many calves and cows here historically as yeah. sheep. Mm. You know, you can get more from a calf, but you can get a fair amount from, from a good-sized sheep as well. So you could make a few bindings out of it. That makes a lot of sense because it, it will vary across the world what they used because obviously it will vary what kind of animals they had available to them and what was more more common, uh, more available. Uh, and it'll depend on how, I guess, fancy the leather is as well and how much of a high-status item something is because, you know, you, you might splurge and... I don't know, have crocodile, something really fancy, but, you know, you know, cowhide being fairly standard. But if sheep is what you've got, then it's going to be sheep. Yeah, there's a lot of alum todd pink skin in uh, Germany, you know, the former empire, Austro-Hungarian empire. How does that compare to sheep and cow? Well, so if it's alum todd, it's a different process, but it's also not usually paired as thinly. So mm -hmm. there's more of the sort of fiber structure intact. So it's stronger for that reason, and it's a different process. It's generally more robust. If it's been stored well, then then it generally lasts. But there's so many other factors, you know, about how it was how it was treated, how it was stored, what other events have happened. I mean, a lot of the working in London in, and with collections that have been housed in London, you know, there's quite a few books that have been through the Great Fire been through two world wars, probably smaller, you know, intermediate fires and other events and floods. And, you know, so the condition of these books is in part due to the leather and what it was bound in, but also, you know, just 
the fact that they're historic objects and have sort of survived a lot of a lot of historical events they're survivors <laughs> I think that's one of the things that really blew my mind when I was learning so I'm I'm specializing in textiles now but I was always like you know organics is my is my bag I, that's the thing that I'm really interested in the thing that blew my mind was when we learned about one of these things the lecturer saying that oh and a lot of these things have red rot because of this type of fuel use I don't I, it just didn't occur to me before that of course if you've got loads of coal or something mm. then you're going to be introducing all of that into the structure and then you know in your libraries and coal fires and stuff yeah the cozy fire actually yeah, contributing yeah. to the deterioration of your books yeah we've talked about the different animals but even the leather that you get from the different parts of an animal are different and have a slightly different structure and stuff so it also depends on which bit bit of the animal they were actually using because whilst you get the whole skin it's not it's not the same texture throughout just look at yourself <laughs> your skin isn't, <laughs> isn't the same all over you so why would it be for animals for example so it, the leather cuts uh, also affect the kind of like suppleness of them and how they deteriorate and how well they take to tannins for example mm-hmm. and also you know the, i mean we call it calf but it wasn't necessarily all you know animals of a certain age they could have been you know an old steer or something like that they could have more scars and scabs and things like that the leather could be tougher or thicker or thinner um (laughs) i sort of uh refer to it as armpit leather there's there's (laughs) amazing (laughs) bits on the skin where it just gets quite stretchy and you know you're never going to pair a straight line if you get into that area you know, you've got to kind of stay towards the spine center chunk because the other things, they'll just, they'll absorb sort of moisture differently. They're not going to pair evenly. They'll just keep stretching. So you'll try and pair a straight line and it just kind of goes off on a slope because, because the leather just is stretching while you're trying to work it. I have a question and I don't know if we can answer it or whether this is um, a question for the room. Um, The room being the listeners. (laughs) Do you think that one could track the um, sort of periods of material glut or um, or wealth in a in a country, depending on how, how crap or how good their leather is? So what I'm thinking is whether what do you get? Do you think? And I mean all objects as well. Do we think that the the makers of leather would just get rid of the crap bits? if they could or do you think that everything is always used up to the last armpit scrap on on just different types of things Um, yeah they will be used for different things i think humans up until relatively recently are famously thrifty on the basis that they Mm. kind of have to be and if you've gone through all of the effort of tanning a whole skin you're gonna do something with every little bit of scrap and I can't say what that looks like and because some of it won't have been very good it probably won't have survived uh, so we probably don't have mm. all of those bits anymore but it could be children's shoes or like the backings for straps or something yeah, yeah I mean, and I think definitely. yeah so some smaller pieces you could use for labels potentially you could use them for mm. spine linings you could use them for sewing supports or you could potentially sell them on to, you know, when you would have sort of rag and bone men and people who would collect up different scraps for other purposes. I think that they would have been reused in 
other ways. I'm not sure all the ways that, you know, outside of bookbinding that they might have been used, but they they did have, you know, there's other ways that you can use them in books. Um, and sort of later on when they were trying to be more economical with leather and there were more books being printed and more books than that needed to be bound, you get half leather and quarter leather bindings where in half leather you have the spine and the four corners are done oh, in leather. Yeah, of course. And then in uh, ha- uh, quarter leather, you just have the spine. And then the rest is either, you know, marbled paper or cloth or some other decorated paper. Um, mm. But you're using less leather and you can also use scraps of leather more easily yeah. because you're not trying to use to cover the whole thing. So you could use those little scraps to just do the corners, for example. Okay, so we're definitely using every little bit. Yeah. If there are bits that are sort of so small that they're not necessarily useful for anything particularly utilitarian, it may be what sort of ends up being uh, little details on toys, for example. You know, like if someone's putting little ears on something or similar. Uh, I feel like that's a good candidate for using up scraps. I was going to bring it back to, you know, how you said, I wonder if you can trace kind of how or how wealthy a uh, place is is based on what they're Mm, using for leather. I mean, I think that there is must be a certain amount of truth to that. But I think more interestingly, you can probably trace things like trade routes. Because, you know, like you wouldn't have access to. I'm trying to think of something stupid. Um, (laughs) Elephant leather. Yeah, yeah. Up until a certain point, you know, you have to open the trade routes for that to even be a thing. And then presumably, if you really wanted to, you could import those animals that you're then making leather out of as well. So I think there's a lot of interesting mapping that is possible for just like the the history of how animals and the byproducts of animals have moved across the world. I think that is a super interesting thing. And now I kind of want to go and ask some natural history people about that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's a great talk on the um, Icon Conservation Together at Home series by um, Hera DeVries. And he talks about um, chagrin, which I was always told was shark skin, but oh, um, yeah. often isn't. What? Basically, there's it can either be made out of have a leather base or have a parchment base, and they were using different seeds or stones or small pebbles or something to impress this texture into it. That was used often in the Netherlands on these small Bibles with silver clasps. I quite like the notion that someone sort of faked shark skin, if you see what I mean. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> like that as an idea that someone's passing something off as being something else and being something perhaps fancier or more rare. That's quite interesting. Yeah, I don't and, know if they yeah, I think that they I don't know if they necessarily faked it, but it was it looked like that thing and then that's what everybody called it. Because uh, I think yeah, until yeah. this was sort of looked at more, it was just, you know, because I think it's originally from Japan and it was used on um, uh, sword hilts because of sure. giving good mm. good grip in case things get a bit gory, mm. um, which you don't need <laughs> on your Bible to carry to church. But um, <laughs> usually they liked the look of it. <laughs> most times anyway, most days, most Sundays it's fine. Um, but uh, they liked the look of it. So it was just the look that they were going for. And it, it looked like this thing. So they called it that thing. Yeah. That, yeah. I don't, so- I don't, I don't want to say that there was um, any yeah. fashion. Yeah. Just aesthetics. Fashion. This is. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's very human as well. 
So I did go down a slight rabbit hole because I did start thinking about in the lead up to this episode. But what about leather substitute? Mm. Because, you know, like it's whether you call it artificial leather or synthetic or faux or imitation or pleather or more recently vegan leather. There there are mm-hmm. a number of substitutes for leather, but they are meant to look deceptively like leather. And I... This intrigues me, this sort of whole imitation game. And obviously now it's used very widely in fashion, but it was also used loads in bookbinding, for example. And I was sort of oddly pleased to find that early attempts at like making fake leather was essentially a paper pulp that was textured. Uh, and, and that was a German example as well in the 19th century. Another example was uh, something called and I might have this wrong, but Rexine. It was like a leather cloth fabric that was made somewhere near Manchester. And uh, it was like a, a cloth surface with a mixture of set nitrocellulose, camphor oil, alcohol and pigment, and then embossed to look a bit like leather. And it was used as a book binding material and upholstery covering. And I just thought that was really fascinating because sometimes you do come across something that seems like leather but isn't. And it's old and you're like, what is this? I just enjoyed that it snuck its way into bookbinding and furniture. And uh, I like that it has a history uh, and that it's not all PVC on fabric. Uh, but yeah, a bit of a rabbit hole and a bit of a tangent. <laughs> I mean, I haven't, I've seen like photo albums and things, but they're more modern, like mid-century. Yeah, um, yeah. Sort of where they're like some sort of leatherette material, yeah. you know, and they've got some like plasticky gold tooling they're yeah I, I don't think terribly highly of them you know um <laughs> it's nice that they've made them you know I don't know of anything that's a leather substitute that I would use in conservation right now um nah. I know that there's some conservators who are fans of doing re- leather rebacks on leather bindings with um, cloth and Japanese tissue and in various layers mm. and configurations and so on. And it, it can be quite effective. Um, I think, you know, with any conservation treatment, leather or not, binding or not, the item needs to be considered on its own and in terms mm. of the collection that it's part of. So that wouldn't have been appropriate for the collections that I worked with or the items that I worked on. But that's yeah. not to say that it won't be appropriate in future and in with yeah. different collections. So I think that that can be that can be effective. And I've used things like solvent set tissue to repair um, detached boards, but I I haven't used something like that for you know a reback, for example. Um, yeah. I've got a dim memory, speaking, in fact, of uh, ways of sort of patching and stuff. And I mean, when I was talking about the leather substitutes, I wasn't necessarily thinking of using them in conservation, more that they sneak in and they look like leather and they're, they're lying mm. to you. They're not leather. and uh, But you might have to deal with them anyway, uh, much like leatherette, for example, which was popular yeah sort of mid-century to like uh, bind things in and stuff like that but that it might be something that we come across and especially now I would say that pleather is very much going to become an issue but then that's more modern materials rather than mm-hmm. um, yeah, leather yeah. adjacent because it's it's a plastic based uh, problem um, but I just thought it was interesting to throw it in there. Um, so I've seen the use of essentially pulps of Japanese paper used to kind of um, 
or create a, a, a sort of the right shape of something. And then what I'm thinking of is is like um, upholstery conservation mm. where something is not meant to be under strain uh, during its, its, you know, museum use. The main thing that sticks in my mind is is the casting of the grain of leather or the, the, the sort of uh, the surface finish of the leather and then using that casting to mould the, the patch, which I found really, really impressive. Yeah. And then using paints and coatings and stuff to completely recreate the surface finish absolutely amazing i'm aware that people do use new bits of leather to to patch but something that i'm i'm just not familiar with the kind of different levels to which something has to i suppose withstand force because obviously if it's just sitting in a museum case then that's one thing but if it's if it's on a chair for example which is a famous uh, famous places for really damaged leather <laughs> yeah. i'm not sure what people do yeah there was a great talk um by somebody from the ethnography group using mm -hmm. like a silicone material to take a casting of mm. the texture of, you know, the box that was covered in leather or something like that. And then yeah, using yeah. using that to mold the tissue into and mm. then repairing so it with, with that. But that was for something that's not flexing or moving. Yeah. And the, the problem with the books, you know, with doing something like a reback is that that is bearing a lot of force. It's it's going to be subjected mm, a to a lot of movement, you know, of so yeah. um, it needs to be flexible and it needs to remain flexible. The way that it's going to be used needs to inform the treatment. Because then arguably it's it's more of a working object. It's supposed to still work. Well, and if they don't work, then, you know, they're just fancy doorstops. Yeah. <laughs> what's the point of a book if you can't open it and, and turn you know leaf through the pages yeah so what about things like consolidants I, I used to do more consolidation earlier in my career because it was more accepted and now I almost never do it because now the thinking is that it just sort of sits on top and that the degradation that's underneath is just going to, you know, you're you're kind of gluing that powder down, but that eventually that's just going to flake off like a scab. And so more often I've done like a manila wrapper to encapsulate the the red rot damage so that it's not, um, readers aren't as exposed to it and, you know, they're not getting it on their skin because sometimes people have um, reactions to it. You know, I mean, sometimes people are just sensitive to it, but you can kind of have a, like an overuse allergy. So if you're exposed to it a lot, as, as people can develop allergies, you know, healthcare yeah. workers develop allergies mm -hmm. to latex gloves and, you know, anyone can develop allergies to mold if you're exposed to it too frequently without correct PPE. People can develop allergies to um, or reactions to red rot. So more often than consolidating will, you know, create some sort of physical barrier between the red rot um, and whoever's handling it. And then that also means that there's there's less abrasion. So if it's not being yeah. rubbed, then less of it will flake off, you know, if it's... Yeah. There's a the Leather Conservation Center had some sort of high tech, super secret way of consolidating leather, but you had to send them your items and they didn't want to release a lot of information. And I'm not sure even if they're still doing it or if anyone took them up on it. But I, I think a lot of, you know, there just wasn't much information about how it was done or what they were doing mm. to your objects. So yeah. I don't know if that's even still happening, but that was a possible alternative to consolidation. 
I think we're trying to move away from the secrecy because I remember this being um, a thing as we studied, you know, where there were a lot of like, oh, the British Museum special leather dressing that they won't tell you what's inside and all of these like secret sauce recipes um, that were going around for what you could do. And it's like, it's not a good idea not to tell people what you're doing or like what you're putting on something. But I guess that's uh, the wisdom of, of hindsight in many ways. You know, now we like to know what we're actually doing to something because that helps that helps future conservatives and it helps us estimate the kind of repercussions of what we're doing as opposed to just going, here's some secret sauce, it'll make it better. Okay, sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's a notable shift uh, in how things are done. And I think that's that's really interesting to think about, actually. And it's also interesting to hear that there's a, there's a shift in um, how we deal with things like red rot uh, and stuff like that, because that's valid valid thinking. And I think, you know, as with anything in conservation, we do change our approaches as we uh, get new data on things. And that's that's super cool. Red rot is a problem in, in leather sort of across the board, um, depending on, on how it's been uh, manufactured and all of that. And also storage and all these other factors and the lifespan of the object. And oh my God, there are a lot of factors. So problems have been things like they've leather has dried out and dried into a weird shape. Yes. Or leather has been uh, been wet because it's been in a flood. It wasn't dried out properly and now it's just kind of warped and weird. And then you have to start mm. reshaping it <laughs> and like working with uh, humidity, but not too much humidity and seeing what you can do and th- that whole thing. But I was also thinking about things like, um, we, because we were talking about we don't want to introduce more things to leather, which is an interesting concept given that leather in its active lifetime is not a static thing at all. It's something that you keep rubbing things into for all of its mm-hmm, use mm. time. You know, it's very rare for anyone to have some leather shoes and never rub something into them to make them look better or be more wear tolerant and stuff like that. People constantly mm. put things on leather. So it's interesting that we've decided kind of as heritage professionals to be like we're not going to put things on leather or at least we're we're going to try to move away from putting things on leather it's uh, it's it's sort of not what the material is for in some ways leather dressing has quite a bad name because there were i don't want to blame the volunteers but there were some overzealous volunteers <laughs> and um there's some some bindings that are still tacky when you pick them up you oh, know and like, wow your fingers stick together, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really overzealous. So I think, you know, because of things like that and the secrecy around the formulations, it's kind of got a bad name. Yeah. But as you say, I mean, but I think in general, with our heritage collections, focus more on preservation, having proper mm. storage conditions. And, you know, if something is more susceptible than I might put it in a box to create a buffer, to reduce abrasion, things like that, rather than adding something to it. Because it's it's not really certain how far into it it's going to go. And, mm. you know, if it only affects sort of the top layer, then the top layer can react differently to the layers underneath. And then will they separate? Will they move differently? Will they react to temperature and humidity differently? There's too many questions, I think. Um, Mm. whereas, you know, my modern shoes that I'm wearing, that I'm polishing (laughs) they're I'm using them differently, you know, than a heritage, heritage object and the considerations for them are different. So my shoes only need to last my lifetime if they last that long, but any treatments that I'm doing in theory should outlive me. 
you know, yeah. they should last a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And the shoes I'm wearing, you know, they're, they're not bad shoes, but I don't know that they'll last a hundred years, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's fair enough. And uh, I'm, I'm not saying that everyone should, you know, go and uh, slap loads of things on every leather object that they can find in their collection. That's not what I'm advocating either. And it's more of a interesting thought. And I think it's probably a happy medium somewhere where less is more, as for all things in conservation, it is a balance and it is something mm. that you have to look at each individual object and the circumstances in which it is used, displayed or stored. Mm. Uh, and isn't that the wonderful thing that everything is a little bit different? <laughs> yeah, and I think there's there's a difference between something needing to function and, you know, being given an object made of leather and that needs to go on display and being told this needs to look better it looks bad make it look better for display i mean if you if you have something that's badly degraded and you don't consolidate Mm. it and it's you know shedding dust all over the bottom of its case and the public's going to come and look at it and think that you're not caring for it (laughs) yeah poor object (laughs) yeah you know if if they think you know this museum's supposed to be looking after their objects and look at this the case is filthy and it's crumbling to dust you know that's not a good thing so I think you know if that was the case I probably would consider consolidating it there's not one rule of ethics for anything you know so I think the ethics in that situation would be very (laughs) different yeah of course to something that is you know going into a reader's hands Mm. Uh, it's very different considerations yeah So today we've been obviously talking about leather and I found myself uh, someone, a bit of an expert to talk to, in fact. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, I'm Mike Redwood and I'm an old-fashioned leather chemist, which I studied at Leeds about 50 years ago. I've worked in the leather industry in tanneries um, um, all my life and in this sort of last couple of decades I moved to a more plural work life and uh, did a lot more things like becoming a trustee of the Museum of Leathercraft and the uh, Leather Conservation Centre and a bit of teaching as well as general consulting. So I've been a trustee of the Leather Conservation Centre since I think about um, 2003. Although I must say most of my time now is still spent with writing for trade journals or um, helping colleagues around the world run their tanneries. How did you start your journey with leather? I started my journey with leather by being angry that the art science combined course that um, I got into at St Andrews um, was going to be run in Dundee, and I didn't want to love it, live in Dundee. I did want to live in St Andrews. And my father, actually, who's a surface chemist in a tannery in Scotland, suggested that if I went down to Leeds, I could do a course that, in his view, did mix art and science, and um, and that was leather. Ah. And uh, it's a bit of a disease, leather. You don't escape from it, and <laughs> once you're in, you're in. Uh, it's it's interesting because we did sort of discuss on the show that, you know, leather is sort of everywhere. And even if you think that we don't use leather very much these days, actually, it's plenty. It's uh, abundant still and we can find it everywhere in our homes and uh, anything, really. Uh, so that's that's fun to hear you say in a way. I guess 
uh, one of the things that um, I would love to hear more about is sort of tanneries and how tanning actually works. I think they still think that almost everybody carries around three or four items of of leather un- unless they are very strongly against it for ethical reasons. But, you know, 90, 95% of the population will have a, a purse, a wallet, a bag, a pair of shoes, a belt made of, of leather. And from the beginning of time, it was the very, not really, the, the beginning of human life when we stood up on our back legs. It was really the only sheet material that we had to protect ourselves. There were no textiles, there was no pottery. So if you wanted to hold something, if you wanted to carry something, if you wanted to stay warm or protected or you wanted shelter, then the things that were lying around going to waste were the hides and skins. Yeah. Um, so we soon learned very simple ways to um, uh, preserve them because the trouble with the hide, hide and skin is that uh, the bacteria will eat it away in a few days. But if you dry it uh, carefully, slowly, um, you can make a kind of uh, rawhide, uh, which will help to some degree, but it tends to be stiff and a bit brittle. And uh, then you start saying, oh, well, if I rub some oil in, um, which you get from the animals you've killed for food or uh, from plants and other places, uh, that starts to soften it. And then you discover that various things added to the hide or skin stops the bacteria um, eating it away. And that really is all that tanning does. It it stops uh, the hide or the skin uh, putrefying and uh, going bad and it uh, preserves it so it lasts a little bit, um, a little bit longer. And then as we've come more to the development of society all the way last through the last two, three thousand years. We've looked to see if we can adapt it so it works better for society as society is developed um, to make thick leather for armor or to make very soft leather for um, uh, fashion garments and mm. Absolutely. That's interesting because we did, because Chloe having an archaeology background meant that we dove into a rabbit hole of how long have people been using obviously fur and hide and then when did tanning actually start and obviously we can't say a defined point for that because that's not really how the archaeological record works. But more about how sort of early depictions of tanneries come from ancient Egypt, for example, and that we've we've got sort of visual proof, I suppose, of tanneries being a thing for, you know, a, a good couple of thousand years. And the fact that we've now refined tanning in, in many ways, there are very many ways of doing it. Uh, I think we mentioned alum and vegetable tanning. Uh, yeah, there aren't that many, though, if you're if you're fair, um, we mention alum and veg a lot because, you know, they're the artifacts you find in um, in museums because they last a bit longer. But um, I think before that, they were using oils and brains mm. to tap. In terms of longevity, in terms of uh, long time durability, are not quite so good. So they tend to have been lost in in history. But I would think today we're pretty certain that it was a mix of brain and oil, sometimes distinct, 
some time to together with things like milk and flour and things like that that uh, were used in the initial tanning. And if you go out to places like Japan that didn't use vegetable tanning or alum tanning until really the 19th century, uh, you uh, were seeing until the 1950s uh, brain tanning was uh, was still being done. Here in the UK, of course, it was vegetable tanning that um, was from the very early days the uh, the dominant tanning method, and then we used alum for small skins. But alum has limitations because you can wash it out fairly easily just in um, in water, so you need to protect it uh, a bit. So we still use it on cricket balls. But if you think on a cricket ball, it's varnished like crazy. So it's protected. Yeah. Um, to be fair, we did also use oil tanning, perhaps more than we tend to think, because, you know, there's a lot of Civil War courts. If you go to either the Museum of Leathercraft in Northampton, or if you go to the fabulous new Civil War Museum up in York on Trent, you'll see the oil tanned coats and, uh, and and jackets that they wore um, with armor and sometimes without armor if they weren't too close to the uh, the war front because they used European buffalo and it was really thick and the oil made a really thick hide didn't make it very light it was still heavy but these were strong people i suppose the soldiers but it made it very drapey and suitable to wear as a coat which you couldn't do with vegetar wow i kind of feel in the terms of the technology of the history that we have a huge amount still to still to learn i don't think there's been many instances where the work of the museum curator or the conservator have, has been done by people with a lot of experience in actually tanning the leather. So getting that mm. knowledge transfer just right, I think has been quite difficult. And there's been, uh, I think, a few assumptions made, like the one that veg tanning came first rather than uh, brain or smoke or oil tanning mm. that have tended to park itself into our history slightly erroneously. Um, so the more we can interface the two, the um the better. That's a really good point. And I wonder what that says about social mobility and all things. But, you know, that's a, that's a whole other kettle of fish. There's quite a big income disparity too, you've got yes, to say. Yes, definitely, definitely. The Conservation Centre, we are trying to re-establish something um, that existed when it was um, founded 50 odd years ago. And that is a proper industry technical committee. Lovely, amazing. And to bring some of the industry technicians onto this committee to look at the history and what and what we're doing. And I think in a way it might become even more important because um, I, I saw the, um, the other day that they'd been doing a pair of Adidas trainers. Oh, wow. Now, those trainers have been made in my lifetime. Yeah. But it's an entirely different process from the... Um, you know, the last thousand years of veg tanned artifacts that um, they've been conserving. And um, so I think we'll need more interface to um, to know how do you deal with, you know, the 
more modern polyurethane type finishes, the, the nitrocellulose finishes and um, the integration with plastic inside a shoe. We were talking um, to our book conservator on the show and she was telling us about how in uh, Victorian tanning was actually quite dreadful in terms of longevity for books, for example, that it, it was um, because of the different fuels used and the amount of pollution and the amount of experimentation. It's It can actually be really hit and miss whether uh, leather tanned in the sort of Victorian time period and up to modern days can actually be, be really sketchy in terms of quality, which is really strange to think about. Well, that was just a consequence of progress. You know, there was a, an Irish scientist who was really keen on pushing uh, very, very strong acids into the leather industry and to speed the process. So there was a huge amount of work going on to simplify and accelerate the process. We couldn't get enough oak tanning because we'd knocked down all the oak, oak trees to build ships to fight Napoleon. So the tanners were um, desperate for raw material. Humphrey Davy, Sir Humphrey Davy, was a big one in helping them analyse veg tans from different parts of the of, of the world. So we ended up using different tanning, vegetable tanning materials. We ended up using more strong acids and we created this wicked thing called um, red rot. Mm. We'd always said on books, that if you if you look at older books, you don't touch them. Mm. You, you worry about insect uh, um, insect damage. You know, have you been to the library in Coimbra in Portugal? No. Oh, well, it's a fabulous um, library in the university there, well worth going to, to see. And they have bats in the library. Oh, wow. And, and they have fabulous leather um, covers for the tables that they put out every night because the bats dropping makes it such a mess. Yeah, of course. But what the bats do is keep the insects away from the books. No, that's amazing. What a great way of using IPM. That's amazing. <laughs> as long as you keep old leather books and old parchment books dry mm. and free from insect damage, you're pretty much in a good place. But these Victorian books, um, you sit them on the shelves and they quietly disintegrate in front of your eye. Yeah. And I just think that's a bit like so many aspects of modern society, the un unintended consequences of rushing along with um, the way we choose to live our lives right now. Mm. We did actually bring up sort of the sustainability because I think uh, Chloe was asking uh, something along the lines of what do you do with all the bits of the leather that you don't use? You know, if the material exists, it will be used, uh, at least until relatively recent history. Um, humans have been quite thrifty with that sort of thing. Um, well, you you are quite right. I think this waste is... Uh, an invention of the last 70 years. Yeah. When I grew up, I was taught to polish my shoes. I have large numbers of pairs of shoes here that um, are over 10 years old. And my uh, fancy brogues for going up to the city are over 30 years old. Been resold a couple of times, but perfectly good form. They'll see me out. And um, I worked for Echo, you know, the shoe company. Oh, yeah. In, in the early two, 2000s. And I... Uh, I brought a, lo a lot of shoes uh, back from them, many of which I kept. But during lockdown, I've been wearing them. <laughs> well, what, what you suddenly discover 
is that some types of plastics haven't survived. Mm, yeah. And they've mostly got plastic soles. And so the leather is absolutely fine, but um, uh, most of the plastic, once you get it out and wear it a few times, starts to disintegrate on you. Because plastics, as you probably know as a conservator, are only really designed to last for 20 years in use. Yeah. And so I, I've just been going through over the last year all my old shoes mm. and finding little bits here, little bits there, or entire soles. They don't last 20 years. No, they certainly don't. But the leather never wears out. And I think that is the whole trouble with modern modern materials. We don't think about repair. We don't think about rejuvenation and um, and reuse. That there's something to be said for the sort of legacy of leather, really. Well, and the sustainability, because your pleather, your pleather jacket, so you've got something that might last a couple of years and look nice, but then it's going to start disintegrating on you and it cannot be repaired. And it's from a fossil fuel origin mm -hmm. and it hasn't been very nice to make. And all these people who say, well, leather making is very complicated and full of nasty chemicals. Well, frankly, I think um, they have very little understanding of the role of chemistry in our in, in, in our life. Because mm. if you make anything from food to ourselves, it involves chemistry. And if you don't handle those chemicals properly, then you're going to have a problem. And that counts for leather all around the world. But it hugely counts with these uh, plastic materials, which are using solvents and other things, as well as fossil fuels, which are really, really nasty. Whereas in the leather industry, we're having fun with uh, natural collagen. And, um, you know, it's a real natural material, biophilic material. 90% uh, of the leather in the world is made by responsible tanneries with proper waste treatment and, um, um, and do things exceedingly well. So that's why I reckon leather always has been such a good material and deserves to be considered one of the most sustainable materials today. Well, Mike, thank you so much for talking to The C Word today. Really appreciate it. No, it's been a pleasure. And um, good luck with this podcast and with all your future ones. So today we are taking a sneak peek into the work of the Leather Conservation Centre. And to help me with that, uh, I've found myself two victims, no, sorry, interviewees. Um, <laughs> would you guys like to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Hi, my name's Ariane Panton. I'm the senior conservator here at the LCC. The LCC is based in Northampton in the town centre. I joined the studio just before the uh, first lockdown and I moved to Northampton for the job so my kind of first idea of Northampton was a bit tainted by the pandemic unfortunately <laughs> um, and then we had this weird period of closure through the year but we were very fortunate to although we closed during the first one we were working from home we did manage to stay open lockdown 2 and 3.0 and we've been relatively busy considering Prior to working at the LCC, I was actually in Qatar. Oh, wow. And I was working at the National Museum there. Um, I was actually out, out in Qatar for five years in total working and studying as well. Wow, that's a while. Prior to that, I did I did a, the course at UCL in London and then also UCL in Qatar. So I'm Rosie Bolton. I'm the studio manager here at the Love Conservation Centre. 
I actually spent most of lockdown off on maternity leave, which was quite well timed in many ways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the last few months I've been easing back into work, which has been great. I came to the Leather Conservation Centre and did an internship with ICON, a year-long one, after studying conservation of books and library materials at Westdean College. And I have been here ever since. Oh, <laughs> lovely. What is the Leather Conservation Centre about? It all boils down to the care and conservation of objects made wholly or partly of leather, which actually... <laughs> That's a lot. So yeah, the yeah. Leather Conservation Centre as a title may be somewhat misleading. Yeah. Um, because we do actually cover quite a, a range yeah. of materials, really. Yeah. yeah, and even within the bracket of leather, there's vegetable tan leathers and chrome tan leathers and raw hides, parchments, mm. vellums, alum toured leathers. There's all sorts of weird experimental leathers from the yeah, 60s. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> because leather it, it spans so many different ty- collection yeah. types, so... We could be treating, you know, archaeological collections, social history collections, um, motor history. Mm. It's utilitarian material, but also we get a lot of decorative and sculptural pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Were were you guys always interested in leather or like how did you like how did you find yourself at the Leather Conservation Centre? Well, for me, it was quite a logical step from books. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was... um, only after I actually started working here that I got really interested in it <laughs> because at that point you realise what an intense and yeah. vast and just a amazing. bit of a Pandora's box yeah, that you, you open. just fall in. <laughs> yeah. At degree level, I did a history and anthropology degree, and I um, became really interested in visual anthropology, which kind of led me in a roundabout way to the museum world so to speak. Mm. I was interested in the representation of other of other cultures in museums and, and it was actually a tour to the Pitt Rivers Museum. I went on a, one of those behind the scene tours and I saw a conservator working on a gut skin parka. Ah. It was like a light bulb moment. I was instantly hooked. <laughs> the um, combination of the science and history and fine handwork uh I was kind of during my studies and some of the jobs that I've had have been with world culture collections so I got into leather and and those kind of hide and skin materials through a kind of world cultures view Mm. yeah it is just it's an interesting material and I think at this point in time as well I think it's a necessary material in that it's it has the potential to be one of the most sustainable materials yeah, yeah. and long lasting and just so multifunctional what's the most challenging thing with working with leather do you think leather is such a umbrella term and there's so yeah. much within it that there's no pieces of leather are the same at yeah. all and there's so many factors that you have to vary into how you can never predict really how how a piece of leather will respond yeah yeah it's got a mind of its own sometimes yeah another thing is at the leather conservation center we work for quite a range of clients so we work for museums and historic houses and cathedrals and churches but we also work for private clients and we get a lot of people bringing in a sofa 
which is, you know, a one of a kind designer, designer sofa, thing, yeah. but they still want to use it every day. Oh, um, yeah. But they don't want it. They don't want it reupholstered. They want to keep the original mm-hmm. leather, but they want to be able to sit on it and, you know, eat their dinner on it. Yeah. <laughs> so that is a very challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Our work is kind of managing client and expectations but also trying to uh, trying to identify the amount of pressure for instance something going to withstand yeah. in the future and mm. a sofa that's going to be sat on or a car seat from a vintage car that doesn't have a roof is going to have a completely different treatment exactly. to a museum object it's one of the most interesting bits as well as I think of of working here is that you really have to debate the level of intervention based on the client's use in the future and how it's gonna feel and be able to be used and yeah it's definitely a balance tell me about the dreaded red rot because that's something that came up (laughs) came up in the episode and you know we're not fans (laughs) well I think it's something that um we regularly get here and we discuss often yeah it's a Um, common topic I think within leather conservation, it seems to be almost an umbrella term for a lot of yeah. issues, which technically are not red rot. I think it's it's maybe as like a series of kind of like side effects potentially that you can identify on a piece of leather yeah. that may fall into this. So sort of what you're saying is that people might call something red rot, but it might not be red rot. It might just be another type of sort of decay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we get a lot of people bringing us objects that they say, oh, I'm going to bring you this. It's got red rot. And then it turns up and it's not red rot. But I think the issue is it's hard to diagnose. Exactly. Yeah. um, Because the looking alone doesn't do it. Although because there's other issues that could give the characteristic look and feel of red rot but if you test the ph it's you know not determined it's not it's stable enough so i think it comes a lot down to experience being able to diagnose it correctly and knowing the history of the object as well is is quite um, insightful into that but yeah it's one of the it's one of the common conversation points and and something that we want to develop further isn't it yeah definitely of how to identify it truly not just based on the color and yeah feel which can be misleading that is interesting i would love to see if you do some sort of training course or uh information pack or something so that people can uh sort of uh, think about how they approach this yeah, it's something that we're hoping to maybe have slightly more outreach on on the subject, or and also I think it's just going to become more of an issue as well as more modern leathers age and you know start coming to conservators. Do you, out of curiosity, do you guys have to deal with a lot of leather substitutes, uh, or do you feel like it's you get mostly like actual leather as opposed to this looks a bit like leather? Deal with it. <laughs> We we do actually get quite a lot of yeah. leather substitutes. Sometimes people don't realise they bring yeah. it to us because yeah. they think it is leather. And that can be a bit awkward sometimes. <laughs> um, and, and sometimes as well, so on things like car seats, we do a lot of cars and car upholstery. And there's often a mix of real leather and... And, and, and a bigger vinyl yeah, type material, coated there. textile. Yeah. I don't think we've had any vegetable-based, no, like vegan leathers. Like yeah, no peanut text. Um, but we would like leather. to get some. Ooh. Yeah, 
You heard it here first, folks, if you have vegan leather. <laughs> and there's um, like people using kombucha to make fake leathers. Yeah. And, you know, there's some really cool stuff going on. Yeah, absolutely. And do you have a favorite sort of project? I quite like the projects, which um, take a lot of problem solving. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, for example, at the minute we have a sculpture which is made of modern leather which has hundreds of thousands of pins stainless steel pins stainless steel pins through it and it's um an oversized dress on a tailor's dummy um and we're lining the back of the leather and the front is where the the spiky bits yeah so the artist has pierced the leather from the flesh side going out so the point it's almost like a hedgehog oh it's quite stunning really it's beautiful um but it's very challenging because it's very heavy, very spiky, <laughs> and the access is poor. <laughs> and whenever you lift, so the the nails have been held in from the reverse with parcel tape, which uh, unfortunately is degrading a lot faster than the other materials and is no longer carrying out its job of keeping the nails in place. So we're having to um, replace that unfortunately and whenever you because the the tape has failed whenever you lift a corner of the of the skirt (laughs) the nails just fall out oh we've had to really do a lot of thinking and adaptation adaptation and we've we've come up with some quite satisfying ways of doing supporting (laughs) it yeah I suppose also um Working with private clients, we get some kind of quite sentimental objects. Yes. Ariane's Uh, recently worked on a really lovely... A coin purse that um, was... The client came to us with his great uncle's coin purse um, that he wore in in battle in Gallipoli. Whoa. And you could fit three or four coins in there possibly mm. a small flap over two compa- central compartments and he was he had it in his pocket in battle um his uncle arthur was his name um arthur was shot at and the bullet bounced off a coin in the coin purse which saved him basically wow arthur uh, kept the coin and the purse and the bullet but all of which have evident damage. Yeah, it's bullet-shaped. Bullet-shaped <laughs> hole, and both the the bullet and the coin have indentate, well, more than. You can yeah. see the, the point of impact. Mm. And um, so the client came to us um, with all three pieces, as well as Arthur's handwritten diaries. Yeah. And um, the client wanted to display them at home. Mm. And so he's come to us... <laughs> initially for stabilization of the leather elements which we did and then it turned out he told us more of the story and he had his the diaries and so now we're kind of working Working on the diaries diaries, as well and advising on a display mechanism and storage conditions Mm -hmm. etc and it will be displayed in the family home having that strong tie and he sent us lots of images of his great uncle in battle yeah we've really kind of got to know the yeah, family in a way mm. yeah. and if anyone's been seeing an image of the coin purse coin and bullet we've actually done a blog about it on yeah the website. it's on the website oh, amazing. we'll link to that 
those yeah. kind of really heartwarming, you know, personal stories that come with private clients is quite yeah. special, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. That's really wonderful. I love it. So um, aside from maybe the aspect of working with clients, what is the, the best thing about working with, I suppose, leather objects? I th- well, I'd say the variety. Yeah, definitely the variety. The variety, yeah. Yeah, there's no two repairs are the same. No. And, and I think as well, because the material itself has had such so many lives, so you have the object and the life that the object made, the making of the object, the material before it was made into the object and the material before it was made into the material when it was still on the yeah, animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's so many layers of, of life and history and context to it. All of so, which have an impact on its condition yeah, and, and mm. reactions today. And sometimes you're looking at things and you can see damage and and you, you know that the damage is actually from when the hide was still yes, on the animal. Exactly. And that I don't know I just find that really interesting yeah that is super cool um do you guys like do training or can people come and visit you or anything like that if they are curious about what you do we do an annual course at Westine College on conservation of leather and related materials um we are starting up again a course that we have ran for many years in collaboration with the University of Northampton which is um, more general it's not so much about conservation of leather it's more about leather technology so during the course you actually make a piece of leather um, oh. it's mostly practical and sanitary. So, they're based at the and Northampton Uni they've got the Institute for Creative Leather Technologies yes and it's in collaboration with them yeah so that's actually a working model tannery and we'll be teaching more of the kind of uh, preservation and and conservation side of it yeah but it's mostly the, so. te- the historic it's leather a, technologies yeah. and some modern leather and mo- technologies yeah modern too. leather You'd technologies you get to see it all <laughs> <laughs> and the nice piece of homemade leather too amazing that's really cool yeah and yeah. um if anybody is interested we are open to interns or if anyone wants yeah. to come and spend time working alongside us we we love that yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisement. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patron, Lucy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Talita Wachtelborn, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenny Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about bolstering business.
In the meantime, check out our website at theseawood.show, tweet us at theseawoodpodcast, or simply email us on theseawoodpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. I'm good. I have no questions. I've got. I've used them up, and um, I think we've got. Uh, I've got a cat in my microphone. Sorry if you can hear purring. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's just delightful. Uh, no, I'm. I'm good. I'm good. She interrupts every episode now these days. <laughs> can you hear her? I don't know. You can hear her.